Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we have a listener request from Anna. Woo! Uh, one that I had a little trouble finding information about. <laughs> Not for the usual reason. No, for an unusual but funny reason. Yes, the usual reason is that something is either obscure or uh, so long ago that everything is contradictory. This one was difficult because many, many people use the word Luddite to mean like some obstinate but draggy person who doesn't want to adopt the new technology. Right. Um and and many of the articles that use the term that way also include just enough Luddite history that it gets tagged that way in all the <laughs> databases. And so researching about the Luddites means that you have to wade through all kinds of stuff about people not wanting fancier phones or new technologies or like some, you know, new massively open online course thing. Yeah. All kinds. Or I myself have called myself a Luddite when I have to call someone on the phone instead of texting them like some kind of Luddite. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those words that's been kind of co-opted into modern slang. Right. And it, I think because it sounds inherently funny just because of the construction of the word, mm-hmm. um, that's why people love it so much. Yes. And while there was an anti-technology piece to the Luddite Rebellion, that's not really what it was about. It's one small element of a much bigger picture. Right. The the idea that, that Luddites were just anti-machine zealots who dragged their feet against progress and went around smashing things is not really the whole picture at all. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Awesome. And thanks to Anna for suggesting it. So the Luddite uprising was a series of protests in northern England in which workers smashed machines in mills and factories. So this wasn't the first organized violence against machinery. Uh, And England wasn't the only place where people took to breaking machines to try to protest something. But the Luddites are, uh, of all the machine breakers, the most famous ones. And they're really the only ones whose name became synonymous with something. Yeah, we've uh, talked about it even a little bit in other podcasts. We talked about it in the Sewing Machine podcast. Mm -hmm. The word sabotage comes from the word for shoe, sabot, which got thrown into things. But the Luddites are exactly what you said. They have become completely synonymous with this anti-machinery, violent hatred for it. Right. When it's not, you know. Not so much what it was about. So yeah, this was taking place, we should contextualize, in the early 19th century. So it was towards the end of the Industrial Revolution. The American War for Independence was still a pretty recent memory, and the Napoleonic Wars between England and France had been going on for a while. So in England, money was really tight, times were pretty hard, and food was becoming scarce and expensive. And the French Revolution was also in the very recent past. So the people in charge were more anxious than usual about the idea of poor people rising up against rich people. It was a time of general unrest and mistrust. Right. And the War of 1812 was looming at this point. So in addition to no longer trading with France, England also wasn't trading with the young United States. And the textile industry was really suffering as a result. The increased work that was coming from putting clothing on soldiers was not making up for the drop in trade. 
Uh, and in addition, trade unions had been outlawed by the Combination Acts of 1799 and 1800. So people were not allowed to band together to try to get an increase in pay or a decrease in hours or to strike. The penalty was jail time or hard labor. And if you gave some money to somebody who had been convicted to help them out, you could actually be fined for your charitable inclination. On top of the legal issues with unionizing, When labor disputes came up, there wasn't always some kind of central place to go and protest or to raise concerns. Um, Some larger factories had been built, but a lot of aspects of textile work were still really a cottage industry. So when people were doing their work at home or in a small mill that was operated by just a couple of people, there wasn't really one juggernaut of an employer where people could go and petition for change. So when you're a knitter working out of your home, you can't really just have a picket line of one out in your front yard. I mean, you could, but it would not be a very effective form of protest. It really wouldn't probably make the statement you were aiming for. No. Uh, And machines get a lot of the spotlight in the Luddite uprising, but the mechanization in question had really started a full 200 years earlier when William Lee invented the stocking frame. And this was uh, a knitting machine that many people feared would put traditional knitters out of work. The concern was great enough that Queen Elizabeth I actually denied Lee a patent and outlawed the frame's production, saying, quote, I have too much love for my poor people who obtain their bread by the employment of knitting to give my money to forward an invention that will tend to their ruin. Which is a lovely sentiment on her part. Uh, A lot of her successors shared this sentiment and continued to support traditional production over machine production. But by the turn of the 19th century, manufacturers were starting to defy the law and mechanize anyway. At first, workers took a legal course of action and they raised money to lobby Parliament to try to keep mechanization illegal. But their efforts failed, and Parliament repealed the laws that were on the books in 1809. But the stocking frame, along with other improvements, ultimately allowed the textile industry to grow. And in terms of overall numbers, it created more jobs than it eliminated in the very long run. But in the short term, people were losing their jobs. And at the same time, mechanization had sparked a number of disputes over wages and working conditions and the quality of work. And these disputes were really at the heart of the Luddite complaints. A good example of the wage issue came from the manufacture of wool cloth. Before mechanization, skilled laborers called croppers would use tools, uh, some of which weighed about 50 pounds, to smooth out the surface of the wool. This required both strength and skill, and so experienced croppers could demand higher wages than a lot of other textile workers could. But when cropping machines were invented, traditional croppers weren't needed anymore. And the other jobs that were being created required less skill and therefore paid less money. So as cropping machines became widespread, many croppers just wound up unemployed. They also had a reputation for being unsavory and rowdy, and the croppers made up some of the most violent Luddites. Conditions in newly opened factories were very often really not what you would categorize as ideal. In many of them, workers were required to live in dormitories, and those spaces were very cramped and tended to be dirty. People would have their pay docked for all kinds of really seemingly insignificant infractions. Uh, And the hours were really long, and the work was really tedious. So it while it may have given you a living wage, it was not a very enjoyable life that you were leading at that point. And then there's the question of quality. Framework knitters, for example, had been making garments entirely on frames. So to make stockings, they would use the frame to knit a tube of material. 
But new mechanization and manufacturing techniques were making it possible to cut garments out that used to be made on the frame out of a large piece of cloth and then stitch them together. These were known as cut-ups, and they required less skill to make, and the workers, and a lot of other people really, perceived them to be of much lower quality than things that had been made as one piece. And that's still the case, you know, in couture work, Mm -hmm. things that are actually certified as couture, like there are lace pieces that are no seams, and then if there's a lot of seaming and piecing, it's seen as less. So yeah. it's, it's still a consistent m- mindset about how things are assembled in yeah. terms of textiles. Workers were really angry about the decline in quality. I mean, people, uh, the, the wages and the living conditions get a lot of attention, but there was a, a lot of anger about, okay, now this is less good work. Why are you making us do work that's not as good? Yeah, they didn't want their industry to go downhill. Uh, and workers didn't like the that the people were being employed in the garment industry that weren't apprenticed first. So it factors into that whole quality issue. Uh, this practice was known as colting, and the quality of the work was poor in part because people weren't actually trained to do it. They hadn't gone through that apprenticeship period to learn their trade. They just got put in the factory floor. So while the Luddites have a reputation for being anti-machine, and a hallmark of the Luddite uprising was smashing machines to bits... It wasn't the machines themselves that were the problem. The Luddites were fine with machines as long as the people using them were trained to do it well and safely and had fair wages and working hours. And as long as the introduction of machines wasn't erasing more jobs than it created or cranking out poor quality goods. There were many tradespeople who took part in the Luddite protests, but croppers, handloom weavers, and knitters, who were the ones most affected by mechanization at the time, were the most prominent. Exactly which workers were at the forefront varied based on which trades were most practiced in any particular area. From the second chapter of Charlotte Bronte's novel, Shirley, which was published about 40 years later and was set during the Luddite uprising, quote, It would not do to stop the progress of invention, to damage science by discouraging its improvements. The war could not be terminated. Efficient relief could not be raised. There was no help then, so the unemployed underwent their destiny, ate the bread, and drank the waters of affliction. Misery generates hate. These sufferers hated the machines which they believed took their bread from them. They hated the buildings which contained those machines. They hated the manufacturers who owned those buildings." So that's the context for the protest, which started on March 11th, 1811. That's when protesters in Nottingham got together to demand better wages and British troops had to break up the demonstration. But the protesters didn't just go home peacefully once they had been dispersed. That night, they broke into a factory in a nearby town and smashed all the machines. Although the name Luddite hadn't been coined yet, history generally marks this as the first Luddite protest. And from there, operating under cover of night, people smash machines in factories and sometimes even set factories on fire as part of their demonstrations. There wasn't a lot of local law enforcement at the time. Uh, Towns didn't really have a police force to call on. So most of the response wound up coming from the military and from the owners of the mills who armed themselves and hired men to help defend their property. By January of 1812, protests were occurring pretty much every night, and they spread to Lancashire and the West Riding of Yorkshire. From there, they moved to Leicestershire and Derbyshire, and the government dispatched 3,000 troops to try to stop these protests. For a sense of what was going on at these incidents, here's an example of a reward poster from January 25th, 1812, which offered 200 pounds for knowledge about a frame-breaking incident. 
Whereas on Thursday night last, about 10 o'clock, a great number of men armed with pistols, hammers, and clubs entered the dwelling house of George Ball, framework knitter of Linton, near Nottingham, disguised with masks and handkerchiefs over their faces and in other ways. And after striking and abusing the said George Ball, they wantonly and feloniously broke and destroyed five stocking frames standing in the workshop, four of which belonged to George Ball, and one frame, 40 gauge, belonging to Mr. Francis Brathwaite, Hosier, all of which were working at the full price. The poster also attests that workmen Thomas Rue, John Jackson, and Thomas Naylor were working on the frames at the time, being paid, and had no complaint with either George Ball or Francis Brethwaite. Soldiers started raiding houses, and they were setting ambushes to try to stop these protests. And Parliament saw machine-breaking as such a threat to Northern England that it made machine-breaking a capital crime. Among this law's detractors in Parliament was Lord Byron, whose first speech in the House of Lords was against the death penalty for machine-breakers. I just want to take a moment to note here that we had gone from the Queen saying that she would not allow machines to be made because it was taking the livelihood of poor people to, if you break a machine, we will hang you. That is that yeah. is the spectrum. That's the trajectory we've <laughs> gone through rather rapidly. Right. So violence escalated with protesters and factory people taking shots at one another. When Luddites were killed during demonstrations, they would retaliate by killing the mill's owners. April of 1812 was a particularly bloody month. In Manchester, a mill owner ordered his men to fire into a crowd of protesters who were threatening his factory's machines. At least three people died and 18 were wounded. The next day, soldiers killed at least five more people. On April 11th, William Cartwright, who was owner of Rawford's Mill, fortified the mill with things like iron bars and a vat of acid to pour on protesters. He had been appointed as a constable to supplement the army and the militia about a month before. And he gathered soldiers and attacked a group of about a 100 protesters who were approaching the mill. Two of the protesters were killed. This protest was one of the most prominent events in the Luddite uprising in the West Riding. And it was one of the inspirations for Charlotte Bronte's novel, Shirley, which we quoted from earlier. On the 28th of April, William Horsfall, a manufacturer who had boasted that he would ride up to his saddle in Luddite blood, was killed in an ambush. Joseph Radcliffe, a magistrate, called in more troops to fight the protesters and put the area under martial law. Uh, Radcliffe was eventually given a baronetcy for his work during the Luddite riots. In spite of the presence of troops for much of the Luddite riots, it was hard for officials to get things under control. The Luddites were doing most of their machine smashing at night while masked, and they usually had the support of the local people. So a lot of times they were protected from the legal forces who were hunting them down. And although the movement was relatively coordinated, there wasn't one central leadership that the army could find and capture to put an end to the whole thing. By May of 1812, 14,400 troops had been sent to fight these riots. The military force in England became bigger than Wellington's army in Portugal, and it was far bigger than any military force ever used to fight domestic unrest in England. As the protest escalated, Luddites were arrested and tried, with the courts trying to make an example of the people who uh, were on trial to discourage further protests. Luddites were sentenced to prison, transported to Australia, or hanged. 
Eventually, Benjamin Walker, William Thorpe, Thomas Smith, and George Mellor confessed to being involved in the murder of William Horsfall. Walker turned King's evidence, and the other three men were hanged the following January. Another man, William Hall, turned King's evidence in both the Horsefall investigation and the investigation into the attack on Rawford's Mill, and he betrayed 16 other Luddites to the Crown. When the defendants were tried in the Rawford's Mill attack, the jury didn't even adjourn for deliberation. They talked about among themselves for a moment before delivering a guilty verdict against eight defendants. In May of 1812, several defendants were tried at a special commission in Lancashire, but none of them on charges of machine breaking. Most of the charges were for food riots, arson, and making illegal oaths. Even so, eight people were sentenced to death, and 17 were sentenced to transportation to Australia. Seven others were sentenced to prison. The courts weren't the only ones trying to frighten the protesters into staying in line. Leaders of the movement were also using scare tactics of their own. In some areas, Luddites took an oath that should they reveal Luddite secrets, they would be, quote, sent out of the world by the first brother who shall meet me, and my name and character blotted out of existence, never to be remembered, but with contempt and abhorrence. So people were reluctant to blow the whistle on Luddites that they knew, either because of genuine support for the movement or because they feared the retribution indicated in that oath. In the summer of 1812, General Thomas Maitland came to put the rebellion down. He offered pardons to people who renounced Luddism and money to the people who informed on other protesters. Since the Luddite activities were really happening at night, he ordered the troops to fight them at night. Soldiers broke up meetings and imprisoned protesters. An anonymous person sent Maitland a letter that that September detailing a number of public houses where Luddites met. And there were, of course, raids followed by arrests as a consequence. Sixty-four men stood trial at York Castle in 1813. Seventeen were executed for machine breaking. Twenty-five were sent to Australia for giving or receiving illegal oaths. Twenty-two were acquitted or released on bail. And that's when the Luddite Rebellion really started to dissipate. The peak of the Luddite activity was in 1811 and 1812, but protests continued until 1816. The textile industry continued on its path of mechanization, and the rebellion failed in all of its aims. It didn't stop mechanization. It didn't save people's jobs or wages. It didn't reverse the trend of manufacturers making lower quality goods. It didn't change working conditions in fledgling factories. They really failed on all counts, and many of them lost their lives doing it. Yes. And yet, while the protest was still a failure and, it, you know, it wasn't the first riot like this in history, the Luddite name has lasted for 200 years. Unlike all of the other machine-breaking incidents, uh, the word Luddite, as we said earlier, became synonymous with something that relates to, although is not exactly the same as, what the original protest was all about. Today, there's also a neo-Luddite movement that centers on the idea that technology's central place in our lives is damaging. Some of this linguistic staying power may be thanks to the the flair, for lack of a better word, that the Luddites put into their protest. They were so passionate, and it's uh, such an it's an image that's so easy to conjure in your mind of someone smashing a machine to bits that it just naturally people make the association and it's yeah uh, well and then rather be rather than being an unruly smash and grab mob they targeted which mills to go after and then they disguised themselves to do so and they also while disguised did military style drills on the moors at night 
and they communicated through secret hand signals, using gestures to send messages and identify one another, as well as uh, conveying poems and songs to each other. Yeah, you can still find a lot of the lyrics to these online. Uh, the name came about through the mythic character of Ned Ludd, also known as Captain Ludd, General Ludd, or King Ludd. The first known use of this name in the context of the protests came in November of 1811. It probably stems from an incident that allegedly took place 22 years before, when an apprentice whose last name was Ludd or Ludlum smashed a stocking frame in rage after being told to square his needles. So his name kind of stuck and became the name of this mythic leader of the movement, even though he had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with it. (laughs) And there was no Ludd leading the riots when they actually happened. Yeah, but the story spread, and Ludd became the face, though invisible, of the movement. King Ludd became a mythic figure who, just like Robin Hood, lived in Sherwood Forest, of all places. And he wrote taunting letters from his office there, all of which was fictional. Yeah. Uh, the Luddites were also quotable. In one protest, the Luddites were using giant sledgehammers to break machines in Yorkshire. They named these hammers Great Enoch after Enoch Taylor, who ran the firm that made the sledgehammers and also owned the machines that they were destroying. They had a rallying cry of Enoch made them, Enoch will break them. And they also protested in dresses um, and called themselves General Ludd's wives when they did this. Just sort of an odd image of these men in drag with giant hammers yeah. chanting and destroying things. Well, and all these things together kind of made it a protest that had character, uh, which I think is one of the reasons that it has more staying power in people's minds than some of the other machine-breaking yeah. protests. A lot of the Luddites who evaded capture were really deeply reluctant to talk about it for years afterward because they feared punishment. This may also have added to this air of mystery about it. Although, around the 1870s, as many of the Luddites reached their very later years, some of them did start to tell their stories and revive some of the Luddite lore. So, today, a Luddite wouldn't say something along the lines of, I don't want an iPhone. More like, and admittedly, this is something of an apples to oranges comparison, uh, they would make between Kodak, which employed 140,000 people, and Instagram, which employs about a dozen. Uh, or the way newspapers have fallen in the face of the internet becoming so popular and accessible. Yeah, or just this morning, um, I saw uh, an article that was correlating the rise in capital expenses on things like robots and technology and a drop in paying actual human labor as a global trend having gone on since the 1980s. That is the sort of thing that would lead to a neo-Luddite protest today, more so than I don't want the latest operating systems. No new things. Uh, King Lud may rise again. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, that is the The story of the Luddite movement. Different than people probably suspect in many ways. Yes, definitely different than the colloquial use of Luddite. Well, and I think some people associate them with, and this is completely wrong, of course, the Amish. Yeah, like no. They think there was a, I mean, I've had people say that, and I'm like, oh, we're going to talk about the Luddites. Were they like the Amish? Not, not so at much. all. <laughs> really not. Not really. They really didn't have a problem with machines if the machines were used well. Yeah. 
Do you want to take a moment to talk about Audible.com? Yes. So Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or your MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. And they have a title that is completely relevant to our podcast today, which is Charlotte Bronte's Shirley. And you, too, can get in on the Luddite information you can as hear, told in a fictional book. You can hear all the parts we did not read from, which <laughs> is the vast majority of the book. Yeah. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash history and get in on that deal. I think you also have listener mail for us. I do. This is from Nathan. Nathan says, hello again, history ladies. Like your podcast on the Oneida community, I enjoyed listening to your show about the Brook Farm community. It seems to me that these Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment era experiments in communism fail because, one, their success hinged on new, unestablished ideas, which invariably changed. And two, the experiments began with the Enlightenment ideal that the perfection of man was an attainable goal, and that they were much closer to attaining that goal than they were. It seems to me that the only lasting successful communist ventures have been monasteries. Whether Buddhist, Roman Catholic, or Orthodox Christian, monastic communities have succeeded because, one, they are founded with an ideology that has been established and generally does not change. And two, the monk or nun joins with the knowledge that they are a long way from the perfection slash nirvana slash stainthood slash theosis, and they have a lot of work to do. As if you didn't have enough podcast requests, it would be fabulous to hear a podcast on Mount Athos, also known as the Holy Mountain. Sitting on a peninsula in Greece, the mountain has been home to 20 monasteries for over a thousand years. The monasteries house innumerable ancient artifacts and manuscripts, which are only now being discovered and cataloged. The mountain is off-limits to women. It has been protected by czars and emperors and protected since Ottoman times by the Sultan and even Hitler. All enticing reasons to do an Athos podcast, don't you think? So first, thanks to Nathan for sending that letter. Yeah. Uh, We got several letters after the Brook Farm episode from people who were saying, you know, I think monasteries are the only people who made this work. (laughs) We did. Like, that was a trend (laughs) in our our inbox. Yeah, it just... And I've I've kind of wondered, um, like I had some personal theories about that, about like the expectation yeah. in joining a monastery is deeply different from the expectation in joining a commune. Like, yeah, those two words conjure up completely different thoughts about what life is going to be like. They do, and I wonder if some of it isn't. Um, and I'm just shooting from the hip. You know, when you sign in to a life of service in a monastery or even a convent, um, it's you recognize that your goal is that you will give service. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you go into a commune like Brook Farm, a lot of those people, their goal was that they would achieve happiness. Yeah. Like it was a little bit more of a selfish motivation. Right. Even if it was very well intended and they were like, yes, we will work for the good of all of us because that will make us all happy. Versus we will work for this thing that is bigger than us and it will never come to, you know, us in a a personal um, benefit way. Mm -hmm. You know, they could certainly get benefit from it and and feel very much at peace and a sense of happiness. But that wasn't the goal of it, whereas it was the the goal of something like Brook Farm. Right. Well, and it also reminded me of an idea I had several years ago of how I really wished that there was like 
a secular monasticism uh-huh. where, like, if somebody wanted to have a monastic life, there there was a monastery that they could go to <laughs> that, <laughs> that was not tied to a particular religion. And I remember a couple of times, like, trying to see if there really was such a thing anywhere. And I wonder if that actually would work uh, without some kind of, like, deep-seated history. Right. Would you just end it. up with a bunch of hermits who would have a hard time working together to make things go? I kind of think that might be. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a thing that would be a challenge there. So thank you so much for sending that letter. If you would like to write to us, you can. We are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at Missed in History. You can find our Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are also on Pinterest. If you would like to read a little more about some of the context that led up to the Luddite uprising, you can come to our website and put the word Industrial Revolution in the search bar. You will find the top 10 Industrial Revolution inventions. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.